Today on Sagittarian Matters, elder queer, advice, aging, eating disorder recovery, and more with my guest, Meg Bradbury. Stay tuned. Sagittarian Matters, Sagittarian Matters, what's the Hello from the Sagittarian Matters Social Distancing Studio in Portland, Oregon. Listeners, I haven't talked to you for so long, and I apologize. But I tell you what, over here in the Social Distancing Studio, producer Ponyo and I have been doing three jobs at the same time. Two of which I can tell you about, one of which I have to remain a little sketchy about. The first one, I don't mind telling you here, I'm doing a podcast adaptation of Calling Dr. Laura for OPB. Oregon Public Broadcasting. That should be coming out sometime next year, at which point I can tell you way more, but I've been working on that. I also just finished teaching my first fully online social distance Zoom class for California College of the Arts MFA in comics program. If you have a question about comics, about graphic novels, about how to make comics, how to publish comics, something about professional practices, which is one of my favorite things to talk about, please call the Sagittarian Matters hotline, 971-361-9998. I promise not to answer the phone. It goes directly to voicemail and you can leave a question. I would love to do a full episode while I'm already on a roll of talking about comics, giving you advice. I would love to do a full episode of that advice. The last thing I've been working on is a script for an animated pilot for a show. And I guess I'm not allowed to say much more about that, but of course, if things go well, I can tell you more later. So that's what I've been doing since we've talked. What have you been up to? Excellent. Okay. Um, I want to tell you some big news, which is that I'm addicted to tahini. I know that's not big news. We already knew this. Every day in my life, I have tahini on something. And most recently, not even a prune. I love it with maple syrup. This is my new thing. Okay, I've always loved it with maple syrup. I've always loved it sweet or savory. You want to add soy sauce? Great. You want to add maple syrup? Wonderful. You want to throw it into some kale that you have stir-fried with some olive oil and some um, soy sauce and some sriracha? You want to add some tahini at the last minute? Perfect. But what I've been doing lately is getting a bowl, throwing in some tahini, some maple syrup, some cocoa powder, mixing it all up, and then adding some Maldon flaked salt on top. I call this the Don Riddle Special. It is named after its inventor. I would love to tell you a top five of things I've been enjoying lately. Five highlights, two lowlights. Okay, here's the five highlights. Number one, I have really been enjoying the television show I May Destroy You by Michaela Cole. Number two, if you also enjoyed that show, or if you just want to enjoy something else that is about 53 minutes long, I recommend going to YouTube to watch Michaela Cole's Edinburgh TV Festival speech, where she talks about the racism and classism that act as barriers for misfit creators. Her word. Number three, I just finished the book Heavy by Kiese Lehman, and it was gifted to me by friend to the show Morgan. I need to say that. The book Heavy, you've probably seen people recommend it. It's been on a lot of lists this year. It is a memoir. It includes trauma. It includes talking about writing, writing, talking about academia, about addiction, about race, about size, about family, about class. I can't recommend it enough. Run, Don't Walk. It is 
such a beautiful book and um, I, I just really enjoyed it. Yeah, that's what I want to say about that. Number four, one more thing I've enjoyed lately on the lighter side is an almost daily email from Samantha Irby. These are recaps of the show Judge Mathis. It does not matter if you have seen that episode of Judge Mathis or even a sing, maybe a single episode, but it doesn't matter if you've been watching it along with her. It's just such a pleasure to get humorous essays from Samantha Irby almost every day of the week. And if you give her money, you sign up on her website. If you pay, you get even more essays. She's a joy to spend time with. I'm going to actually add 4.5. I'm listening to the book Meaty by Samantha Irby right now. You know how listening to a podcast makes you feel like you're hanging out with somebody? Listening to an audiobook feels like that too, and I really like hanging out with her. Number five, I just finished and adored Lisa Hanawalt's comic anthology, I Want You, with Drawn and Quarterly. Um, not to brag, but I have all the individual issues of Lisa Hanawalt's um, indie comics. She's the person who drew all the characters from BoJack. She started off as an indie cartoonist and you can get all these individual issues or you could at a time. Drawn and Quarterly has taken the work out of that. They put them all into an anthology. If you want to see comics of anthropomorphized animals, a horse on his hind legs wearing sexy man clothes. If you want to see a drawing of a horse with spaghetti coming out of his eyes. If you want to see different animals wearing hats with food on them. Get this book, I Want You by Lisa Hanawalt. That's what's happening over here. Those are my highlights, my lowlights. There are very noisy crows in my backyard. You would think that I love crows, and I do, but sometimes they're talking so much that my neighbor next door, I can hear her yell, quit cawing, shut up. And I honestly, sometimes I do ask them to be quiet. I don't know what they're talking about, but there's a crow caucus in my backyard every day. And that brings me to another point. I got a beautiful Venus flytrap from somebody as a gift because there are flies all over my backyard and my house. You may be you know, wondering, is Nicole's house covered in feces? No, it's not. There's nothing in here for them. There's nothing in here they want. So as soon as they fly in, they're trying to fly back out again per their name, but they just keep hitting the window pane over and over. And then they're freaked out by me. And then they die a lonely death somewhere in the depths of my house if I can't catch them. So I have a Venus flytrap outside, and I think the crows messed with it and knocked it over, and now, I don't know. Question, listeners, am I still vegan if I'm rooting for the Venus flytrap? If I want it to at least catch a fly, if I get a little excited when I see something in its maw, am I still vegan? I think I am. But I do hope it just sends a message to the flies. There's nothing in here for you. There's just a tiny carnivorous plant. That's all there is. Um, the other low light for me is I started trying to watch the show I'll Be Gone in the Dark based on Michelle McNamara's beautiful book. And I just couldn't do it because I remember the terrifying fear of the Golden State Killer somehow appearing in my bedroom. And I had to stop watching it, even though I'm fascinated with the show and the things that will reveal about Michelle McNamara, who I think was a very interesting person. So that's it. You have some highlights. You have some lowlights. You know what I'm doing for work. I'm so happy to be back. Please do send me your advice questions. Please do send me your comics questions. Tip producer Chris, as always, and enjoy the show. 
Meg Bradbury is the founder of Elder Queer, an online space for queers age 40 and up to connect and build community with conversation about aging in body, mind, relevance, culture, and relationships. Meg also has a practice and an Instagram account called Lamplight Space. She's a certified body trust provider, an anti-diet nutritionist, an accessible yoga teacher, and a fat-affirming presence in the world. I talked to Meg about elder queer, orthorexia, her work with Lamplight Space, and more from the social distancing studios of Portland, Oregon, with producer Ponyo snoring gently into her headphones nearby. Just so you know, Ponyo wasn't snoring because our conversation was boring. She fell asleep because she feels so comforted by Meg's voice and presence. Meg has watched Ponyo before, full disclosure, and while watching her, was terrified that Ponyo's eye might pop out. Because listeners, you know our producer, not producer Chris, producer Ponyo has some eye problems. And so for a long time, every time somebody watched her, I would say, don't let her have any stuffed animals because if she shakes them, her retina might detach and she'll go blind. Well, that did freak out a lot of dog sitters. I tried to ease their mind by saying, if she goes blind on your watch, that's God's will. Don't worry about it. It was going to happen eventually. But that wasn't so soothing for everyone. Anyway... Meg kept great care of Ponyo. Ponyo's eyeballs stayed attached, her retinas stayed in place, and now when Ponyo hears Meg's voice, she's lulled to a comfortable slumber, feeling safe and easy with the purveyor of lamplight space nearby. Back to the business at hand. In this interview, we touch briefly on the links between eating disorders and white supremacy in America. But for further reading on the subject, Meg shared a list of social and racial justice-centered anti-diet body diversity awareness work recommendations. You can find them in the show notes. In that list, Heavy by Kiese Lehman. That's the book I was just telling you about. Okay, very, very lastly, before I get to my talk with Meg, she answered a few questions about being an elder queer. Please enjoy these three questions before I begin my talk with friend to the show, Meg Bradbury. Dear Sagittarian Matters, we have lost a lot of elders in our communities due to the AIDS epidemic and also violence stemming from homophobia and transphobia. And I'm wondering what wisdom or lineage has been passed down to your guests from their elders and wondering how they feel being an elder in their um, queerness now, and then what they'd like to pass down to their um, descendants or those who come after them in our communities. It's really the gift of being an elder and merging into elderhood that makes you, or that makes me, I'll talk about myself, really grateful and appreciative of the elders who came before me. Um, each generation before our own, no matter what generation we're in, fights and struggles and protests and suffers and celebrates and loves and flourishes and, and dies so that we who come after can do the same. And as with any marginalized group, who we are as a people, as queer people right now, depends on the generosity and bravery and valor of the folks who lit the path for future generations. God, I get so weepy when I talk about this. I do feel like I have a responsibility. That responsibility is to give back to the elders before me. 
to validate their work as well as to bring forth what I hope will be forward action to the generations ahead of me. So it's kind of keeping the light lit and carrying the light forward. And that is my responsibility as a queer elder, as a dyke elder. I hope to carry the light forward. Oh God, I get so weepy. I am old. Dear Sagittarian Matters, how do you navigate care if slash when you are older and cannot care for yourself? Advanced directives? It worries me that I may be in a place to no longer care for myself, but also not have anyone around to make decisions for my best interests. I have great community, but not a ton of young people in my life. Yeah, that's such a good question and one I've thought of a lot, both after my mom's death two years ago and um, especially with all the mystery and unknown of the COVID thing. I decided to take a team approach to my end of life wishes. I do have an adult daughter who's the leader of what I'm, what I'm calling my dubious demise team of three. The other two are very trusted beloveds who aren't necessarily that much younger than me, but they know me and love me and get me. And between the three of them, my daughter and my two people, I'm hoping someone will be around and available to help me when the time comes um, and help each other, really, too. Um, I did my advanced directive, and each person on my team knows the other person, knows of the other person, and knows how to get a hold of them. Um, My best advice is to identify several or a lot of several, however it works for you, dear ones that you trust, and let them know your wishes and get it in writing and and notary public, notarized, notary notary public. (laughs) If you have the privilege of health insurance, um, your carrier may have forms you can fill out for advanced directive. um, And you can file it with them. I have Kaiser and, and their form is comprehensive and really comforting, actually. And also it's changeable. So it's kind of like a living well. You can also look on LegalZoom. And I've used LegalZoom for a bunch of things. And I really recommend um, them for how straightforward and easy they are to work with. So you can check that out. But again, I think my best advice would be to to tap into your community of friends and people. Um, And that's something particularly as elders that we can start talking about a little bit more too. I love this question. Dear Meg, what do you miss about queer life from any decade past? Signed, Curious in Quebec. Gosh, I'm old, so each decade has its own soupy melancholy. I mean, there's specific um, such affection that I have for the the era that I came out into, um, which, you know, just for the, the visceral kapow of coming out and what that meant... Um, but I'd, I'd have to say if I picked one, I think the activist 90s in San Francisco was incredible. Um, I got to be there for all the HIV AIDS activism, um, the, the politics and protests and festivals and fetishes and, and take back the night and drum circles and 
the sunshiny parks and baby dykes and sex clubs and riot girl and and punk and lesbian bookstores and brunches and it just felt like we ruled the world it, it really just felt like we were the people who were making the change um and I guess I missed that slamming surprise of it, you know, like, we can do this, we can take our clothes off and march down the street, or we can, you know, it just, it just felt so both, like, that, that sort of, like, punk miscreant misbehavior combined with the, the rightness and the righteousness and the um, pissed off politics of it anyway I just obviously I just get all worked up talking about it but yeah that that I actually you know it's interesting because I can see a lot of that happening for folks now um, with racial justice work um, the the systemic racism protests and Black Lives Matter there seems to be the conflagration of politics versus personal versus change making um that that feels very familiar um to the 90s to the late 80s early 90s mid 90s um in political queer time pretty powerful Meg who are you to me, you're a multi-hyphenate. To me, you do so many different things. But for today's podcast, you're here because I would love to talk about your work with Lamplight Space, your work with Elder Queer. But how do you describe yes. yourself? Well, it depends on the day and where I'm at in, in my long history of cycling. Um, I describe myself as somebody who works with other people in coming to terms with trusting their bodies again after some time away, if they've had that, trusting food again after some time away, if that's been part of their lives, and also incorporating these things, which are very layered and complex, into their aging process. So Lamplight is very specifically about food fear, shame resilience, um, body image work, things like that, and that translates into aging too. So elder queer is all the aging pieces of that and more. Hmm. How did uh, you come to this work? Um, Lamplight um, became a practice for me to work with other people on body image issues when I was um, in my recovery from many, many years of different eating disorders in and out of my life. I'm 57 and my first um, body the first time I realized my body was a problem, I was told by my mom, and that was when I was five. So from five to in my 40s are different eras of eating disorder issues. Um, most recently in my 40s with an eating disorder called orthorexia. And um, through the healing of my orthorexia, I started working with folks who introduced me to the concept of body trust. And body trust is a um, modality and methodology uh, founded by um, two folks in Portland, uh, Hillary 
Canavy and Dana, Dana Sturdivant who do Be Nourished, who run Be Nourished. And they're sort of um, a lot of the body trust and body image reclamation, social justice mecca, which is happening actually there in Portland and kind of burgeoning out all over the world as they certify and train body trust providers, which is something I did. Cool. I guess I think of you as somebody who grew up punk mm-hmm. or who moved through the world as a punk. And I, I feel like, you know, diet culture was not necessarily something that goes hand in hand with that. So what were the ways that your eating disorder, I don't know, could kind of flourish, flourish or exist amidst yeah. your kind of punk programming, your, you know, um, your subculture, queer life? Yeah, there were certainly eras of it. Um and I'd say I was a punk in L.A. in the late 70s, early 80s. And that was very different from being a punk in the mid-80s and forward. Like, I, I look at the punks that I knew that were later punks than me, and it really, really became very admired in food politics and um, and equity and things like that. In my generation, um, it was pretty much just about drugs and drinking and and the music and and suburban kids pretending to be you know poor and you know and I was one of those kids but it was it there was nothing at all about you know food politics or uh, food justice or anything like that so I think during that time of my life I was um, I was really doing a lot of substance stuff and then um, kind of moving forward, I'd go in and out of periods of eating disorder and it would morph as my life changed. Um, in the 90s, I had like almost 10 years of what I call remission. I didn't have very many worries at all. I lived up in San Francisco almost that whole time. Very curiously, it was a very happy and centered and, and really political time for me to be there with queer nation and act up and all the HIV AIDS work and and all that stuff and so I was very centered in that work then and maybe I just didn't have time or the wherewithal or I just felt somehow um, either distracted enough or fulfilled enough to not even worry about my food shit or my body shit Um, and then kind of moving forward and just flag me down if I'm talking too much um, kind of moving forward from there, I um, decided to get pregnant and have a child. And with that, all the body changes kind of woke up my eating disorder. And I started kind of on that train. And, you know, henceforth, now my daughter's 22. And there's a whole story into that. But yeah, it's interesting with eating disorders, they can kind of change and, and, and present in different ways in different times, even if you've worked to heal one kind of eating disorder, another kind can sort of sneak in. And orthorexia is really good at doing that. Can you define for people what orthorexia is? Yes. Orthorexia is a pathological obsession with healthy, quotation marks, or clean, quotation marks, eating and food. And it can actually not only be about food, it can be about lifestyle and products that you use and and people that you talk to and places that you go and things that you see and do. It's all included sometimes. So it becomes very 
very all-encompassing, very overwhelming. To me, that feels like the one that, you know, being in Portland as a punk person coming up and being adjacent to fat-positive communities, orthorexia felt like a way for people to... It's almost like punk damage, like punk damage Mm -hmm. where someone's like, I'm going to use this plastic bag a trillion times because I'm saving the earth. And part of it at some point you're like, do you also just not feel like you deserve a new plastic bag? You're just like, I have to eat this, this thing that I don't know. But orthorexia feels very sanctioned or something that people here can easily go into because it's like, oh, I want to I want to be healthy. I want to eat more vegetables after neglecting my body or being a punk kid who couldn't afford any food. So now I'm going to buy the best food. Oh, but then it has to have this nutritional element or, oh, it's not organic or oh, it has BPAs or it could just go on forever. It could just exactly. That's exactly the conundrum of it. And then you add in somebody who has eating disorder in their neuropathy and it's like oh here we go you know the eating disorder kind of clutches onto us and go okay we got rules now we got restrictions now let's let's go let's keep going with this and it, and it does become so aspirational it's like you know when i started i considered myself done with my eating disorders and then um f- kind of coming into clean eating healthy eating to support my running when i was running a lot um that that just sort of was almost like a little bit of a bridge, like it didn't feel like diet culture. And I knew better than to, say, practice behaviors that would support anorexia or practice behaviors that would support um, binge purge or bulimia, all of which I'd done in my past. But, um, but this just seemed like it wasn't, it just seemed like I was doing the right thing. And like you said, you can, you can just like take one idea, which seems pretty innocuous and seems pretty great. Like I'm going to eat healthy and that can just transform into this quagmire that you can't, don't know how to get out of. And that doesn't happen to everybody. And also we have a, we have a a industry industrial complex of diet culture, which spends $70 billion a year to help us, to encourage us to feel like we're not doing enough. We could always be doing more. We could always be tweaking more. We could always be restricting more, you know. So we're also aided by that, too. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know for me, I'm a vegan of many years, and so I can't add anything onto that. Like, I already am such a weird enough eater that sometimes, you know, if someone's like, oh, but did you know that this gum or this carrageenan, I'm just like, I just can't actually even. Yeah. I can't go there because I already have. I have a rule already that's happening. I can't add any Great. rules. Yeah, I think that rule is important because you know you know where to stop it because it just could be unstoppable otherwise. And um, it's so interesting how this particular disease or this, you know, if, you're, if you don't have an eating disorder or the, the impulse to eat healthy is so we all become like, like master scientists. Like we read an article about say carrageenan and we hear that it's just seaweed, but if you process it in this certain way, then it becomes yada, yada, yada. And you just, you can't, if you, if you, if you give the space to all that data and all that information and, and all that nutrition science stuff, you wouldn't eat anything. And it's sort of like 
we we spout all this information on social media, like, oh, I heard this, so I'm going to stop doing this. Oh, I, I'm somebody told me about this, so I'm just not going to eat. It kind of like creates this 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 social, structural, um, sort of ego admired performative way of living that you feel lesser than like, like, you know, looking at people's grocery baskets, like, is anybody seeing what I'm shopping for? I don't want them to see that I'm buying a Sarah cheesecake. So I'll cover it with my spirulina kind of thing. And this happens a lot in affluent communities. Um, yeah. And I know we want to talk a little bit about white supremacy and, and, um, privilege in terms of eating disorders, especially orthorexia, but that will come up too. Cause I had a kid at my school. I work at a school, and I had a kid at my school say, I'm really glad I'm not a rich person because rich people can't eat cake. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Why? Oh, because they're all allergic. They're, they all have, I don't know why they all have gluten stuff. I don't know why. What's going on? It's always the rich people. It's just really kind of funny. Like, I don't know. Well, also, I mean, a lot of this is, is just rooted in in European, like, white body body image, body standards. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the if you think about who the evolutionists were, who got to decide long ago what this you know superior body type was, why it was their superior body type, it was you know white Northern European dudes. So that was the superior body type, and anything other than that was savage or or ugly or you know unfit or all the all the terrible things. As a white person, I feel like um, I can. I can talk about it in that I've read about it, but it's not my lived experience. Um, and there are a shit ton, and I'll send you for links if you want, a shit ton of people like on social media and stuff that have a lot more to say about it um, in a way that's personal Wonderful. than I do. It's a really important connection. It's such an important connection. And another connection I was remembering the other day was when we talked to Karen Tonkson about her book about Karen Carpenter, and we were talking about how um, part of Karen Carpenter's anorexia seemed like because she, you know, she, or Karen Tonkson kind of posits that Karen Carpenter was trying to desex her body. Like she mm-hmm. was trying to disappear, but she also was a tomboy and she was trying to limit her calories and control her body as a way to stay, to stay less, you know, feminine looking. Yeah. 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 I think that there's a lot to that. Um when you when you stop eating, you obviously lose body fat. You lose um, things that are commonly associated with feminine bodies, breasts and hips and belly fat. And, and um, often um, your hormones get janky and so you lose your period. You don't bleed anymore. Um, you have, uh, your body is really just concentrating on staying alive. And so all of the, the auxiliary things like menstruating and conceiving and, and all these other things kind of get set to the, to the side while your body is trying to keep you from starving yourself to death. So it shuts, it kind of slows down your metabolism. Um, these are the same reasons why diets, you know, diet cycling ends up failing because each time you try and do this to your body, your body's like, uh-oh, here we are again. We're in starvation mode. So I'm going to slow everything down and make you hungry and make foods really look good because we need you to eat. Um, so so with, with kind of desexing oneself through starving oneself, it, it, it really does take away a lot of the... Um, 
the outward signs of femininity, of afabness. Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky. It's very, it's really, I think that especially with um, trans folks and non-binary folks, there's a lot of dysphoria and dysmorphia around, you know, presenting in, in the the gender one's supposed to be. And that can also be very, very imbalanced too in terms of eating and in terms of exercising and pathological exercising. Today's episode is brought to you by Emily Helmus, Grace Lambert, Shoshana Ruth Wechter, Christy Herod, Mary Pinson, Michelle Lemoyne, and Joey Soloway. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, especially producer Chris Sutton, please send $5, $5 million, that's your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. Or, this just in, he's got a Venmo, Hell Books on Venmo. That's H-E, double hockey sticks, books. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it, too. Don't be scared. That's just Ponyo's speaking voice. We want to give a special shout-out this week to voice actress extraordinaire Lisa Nims. Thank you, Lisa, for helping us with an advice question. We hope to hear you as you have a bright future in voice acting. Well, I guess that this is a good segue for how you founded Elder Queer, mm-hmm. because these some of these things are very specific to the queer experience. Yeah, yeah, I would say um, for me, um, one thing when I was uh, starting my perimenopause era, <laughs> which is an ongoing era, um, I really needed to find a safe place in terms of um, my body work, my body trust, my eating disorder recovery um, to talk about the changes that were going on in my body without feeling shame, without feeling pathologized or pandered to or, you know, in, in a space of patriarchy with all that, um, which a lot of menopause discussion is. And I wanted to find a place to talk about menopause with other queer folks Um I found the heteronormative straight cis discussion of menopause to be very like my husband focused and my, oh, my vagina is not enough focused or, oh, I'm going to get fat and da, da, da. And it was just all feeling so wrong to me and so unsafe to me that I decided to throw out on, on Lamplight Instagram, like, hey, I need to find queer people who are aging and want to talk about this process. And if you want to talk about this process, I'm going to have a Zoom meeting. Just we need to get together because I'm alone here and I, or I'm feeling alone and I need to know y'all are out there. And so that's kind of how Elder Queer started. And we just ended up talking not only about body trust and menopause and, and you know, change cycles, but also um, dating and relationships and cultural relevance. What is it like to age as a queer person and maybe not have the family structure that that, that heteronormative families have and maybe not have the um, the double income or the the ability to have retirement and you get to you get to quit your job and so a lot of things that are different for us queer folks I think in the way we have our families and our chosen families and our work 
um, is a little bit different. And giving that some honor and some credence in the discussion of it has been really important. Has the has the word queer changed for you over time? Or do you do you have a definition of queer that you've kept with you that stayed the same? You know, I I came out when I was 15. The word queer was definitely not used in the 70s, um, other than uh, uh, an insult. Um, And of course, then I was calling myself bisexual because, as we all do. Um, And then I kind of really latched on to gay. So I'm just, I'm I'm sort of tracing my own metamorphosis. Um, Then back in my day, uh, like 80s, lesbians wanted to differentiate themselves from the gay guys. So we were lesbians only. Uh, We wouldn't call ourselves gay. We only called ourselves lesbians. Um, Then queer kind of came back with politics and kind of reclaiming the word queer nation. Um, For me, that was my first uh, use of it personally. And I didn't really know at that point what it meant to me. Like, I'm a lesbian. How do I incorporate the word queer into my description of myself? So I didn't know, so I didn't. But now I kind of use it because it's a all it to me, all inclusive term that is constantly changing. And because we are constantly changing our language around gender and around gender spectrum and around sexuality expression, and there's so much involved in it that we can't always say every single thing in the in the queer umbrella spectrum every time we're talking about it so for me i say queer because i'm hoping that includes who needs to be included in the conversation for the conversations i'm having in the queer community for me i tend to say uh lesbian identified queer or dyke identified queer or even further butch dyke identified queer um depending on how specific i need to be or want to be at the time because i still love love calling myself a lesbian. I love it so much. It is such an important word to me and such an important um, part of my history that I will glom onto it. But at the same time, it's it, the word queer. It, it, lesbian is just kind of like, boom, two box, little box. Queer is very expansive. And so I can live outside of the box too. Do you like lesbian more than dyke? No, I like dyke. I appreciate Dyke a lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah. We had a friend to the show, Jessica Lignato, on like a month ago, and she was lamenting that she and her partner could no longer call themselves Dykes. Um, Why is that? Well, her partner transitioned, but he uh, had oh, really oh, had oh, a God, lot of I investment in thing, being yeah. a butch Dyke. Yeah. And so they yeah. both sit around and were like, remember when we got to be Dykes? Right. <laughs> right. It's it's like, I remember in the 90s when when... A lot of folks in the San Francisco lesbian community were were trying that on. We're trying, you know, like, do I want to transition? Do I want to start hormones? It was like a a very hap- the discussion happened every day. Every lesbian conversation I was having, there was a question, right, for butch lesbians, and a lot of the butch lesbian community kind of disappeared because we transition a lot of us transitioned and so that was a whole discussion too among the among the lesbians who didn't transition um it's like oh our community is really much smaller now it was really curious 
It's kind of a great time to be in in gay history. So great. Yeah. Does it feel like that is when, was that a a similar time when the word queer was becoming more widely used? Because you're like, well, I want to include these people that are in my community, in my broader community, in my sexuality. I think so. I definitely think so. But I also think that people are using the word queer, like younger folks um, are using the word queer in a different way than I use it. And I think it may be just generationally different every every generation that kind of moves forward, which is great and lovely. And I love that because everybody gets to own the gig, right? My gig, my generation gig, I don't want to say it's over. That sounds really dramatic. But it's also it's also time for us to, to I don't want to say step aside because that's part of elder queer is kind of asserting that elders are very, very important, uh, a very, very important part of a community. And we in the United States don't really do that very well, just in general with older people. It's such a capitalist, it's such a capitalist, like bullshit thing to be like, well, these people aren't in the workforce anymore, so they need to be invisible and over to the side. What good are they? Right. Yeah, they're not producing anymore or they're not, you know, they're not viable anymore. They're not sexual anymore. And all of that is such bullshit because we produce, we're viable, we're fucking sexual. And it's like, again, another piece of elder queer is like asserting that forward, like being part of that conversation. So I know and now I got crabby and lost what I was talking about. I mean, I kind of like getting a little bit crabby. But I, I heard you on a different podcast talking about, I think, um, older elephants and how they yes. treat each other. Yes. It's like the, the, the matriarch, and it's always a matriarch of an elephant herd, um, will get tended to. And the whole herd will slow down for her and send the younger members of the herd to kind of, kind of be around her as she moves along slowly. And I, I just love that. I think that's so amazing. The, um, the book, Flash, oh, I'm going to remember it, Flashpoint Diary. I'm saying that wrong. I don't think it's Flashpoint. Whatever. We'll, we'll note it somewhere. Um, there's a, it's, it's about kind of a, a feminist take on menopause. Um, it's, it's pretty straight and pretty cis, so warning there, but, but it does, it brings in a lot of the conversation about mammalian menopause and other animal menopause. And it's super interesting and very sad too. It's, it's, I think humans just do this capitalist bullshit thing of, like you said, commodifying somebody's age. There's so much older people have to give. I'm, I'm, you know, like I said, I'm not, like, I don't consider myself an aged person, but I'm still feeling invisible. I've definitely become more invisible. I've definitely become kind of pandered to a little bit. Like, it, back in the days when we'd go to concerts or shows or whatever, people were like, oh, cute. Come on, you know. Oh, look at you. So cute. I was like, all right. Uh, which you know can be nice i guess but it's also very strange how you go from being a a teenager to an adult to a young adult to an adult and then cute maybe i'm just short but it's just strange what we do to older people yeah i well because you know i worked with senior citizens like people in their 80s generally and above 
for so many years here in Portland, and it was a lot of people that were institutionalized or had different, um, like different abilities or different, you know, cognitive disabilities. And it was just so wild to be like, this is the coolest, smartest person in the room because they've lived so fucking long through so much. They know so much more than me. And also, you know, when my friends are like, I'm turning 30, they're like, oh my God, I wish I was 50. Like, 30 you have any like that's nothing I know and and then when you get to be a little older you think back on god would I do my 20s and 30s again fuck no no there's a lot more there's a lot more freedom to be had I think in being older and part of that is not giving so many fucks part of that is being invisible I will say that being invisible is annoying but it's also a superpower because you can get away with a lot like say say you're an an old fuck and you're going to a protest you can get away you can get a lot more done and said in an older body in an older white body that nobody's going to touch than you can say in in a different kind of body in a younger body or in a, in a in a darker body it's just it's so interesting so there's a lot of ways you can get through a political system just by looking old because people aren't going to look twice at you and assume you're just not going to so that invisibility is kind of interesting to play around with as a source of power are there other ways that being part of the elder queer community which just popped up during covid right no no this, no. this it was, it's, it's about a year and some oh. old did you meet up in person before or were they all zoom meetings all zoom oh all zoom well forget scratch that but are there ways that being involved in the elder queer community have made you feel differently about aging or changed your mindset about aging i don't know if that's such a good question i don't know if it's changed but it has empowered so I guess that would be changed. I don't necessarily think I came into my aging process feeling lesser than or othered yet. However, I will say that hanging out with a group of people, you're in a Zoom meeting um, or, you know, or you get together with a couple people like pre-COVID, you get together with a couple people that you met from the Zoom meetings and you all kind of, you learn from these people and you grow with these people, even though you're, you're older and you realize, oh my gosh, there's so many of us and we're still ready to fight tooth and nail for our, you know, existence and our freedom and, and the freedom of the people that come after us. And, and so I think that that's super empowering and also any shared experience has a sense of, of really great, um, healing to it and storytelling which is an amazing part of elderhood because you have stories to tell and you have experiences to share and wisdom to impart and hearing fellow people who are in their 50s or older or maybe a little younger whatever talk about their stories it's all very very empowering so yeah I think I've changed in the way that I found a community that I didn't know I really needed and I didn't know they're really could be. So that's been really great. Hi listeners, it's me, Nicole. If you would like to support me and Ponyo, in particular our comics and animal illustrations, 
go to patreon.com slash Nicole J. Georges. And for as little as $2 a month, you can have access to hundreds of pages of otherwise unpublished diary comics. For the price of one cold brew plus tip, you can become an honorary Sagittarian. And for the price of two vegan cupcakes or two vegan donuts, you can become a Ponyos Friend Club member, at which point you really start raking in goods, including new buttons. Check it out. Patreon.com slash Nicole J. Georges. question just going back to something that you said before 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 we even started recording which was we were talking a little bit about anorexia being people disappearing and not feeling worthy Mm -hmm. can we talk about Mm -hmm. I don't know how does worthiness come into your practice or come into your work always 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 I think we're told by diet culture from a very young age Um, we see kids as young as three um, starting to feel insecure about their bodies um, and that sense of worthiness, that sense of belonging, that sense of um, acceptance, feeling like you fit, um, that has everything to do in our culture, in our modern, modern culture, with how we look. Um, and we live in such fear of living in a fat body um, because our, our and, and it's, it's understandable, right? It's understandable that you wouldn't want to be fat because our culture treats fat people so miserably so there's that sense of like i'm not worthy until i achieve this type of body this one type of body that seems to be what what my culture is telling me is the one type of body that's acceptable um and sometimes in eating disorders that sense of worthiness can really be a mind fuck like i'm not worthy enough to eat i'm not worthy enough to stop exercising after i eat Um, And it just becomes like this whole, not just how you want to look, but how you want to feel and a sense of um, belonging that you're constantly searching for, Um, which, you know, particularly in in eating disorders, it just gets harder and harder and further and further away from your reach as you try and try different ways to get there. Mm -hmm. How do people get reeled back in from that? I mean, and that's probably a lifelong process. It, it can be, for sure. I think it's um, recognizing um, that there's an issue. And sometimes that, that comes, that, that recognition, that, that waking up, that, that final, like, I'm done, I'm done with this. I've hit bottom. I'm totally fucking done with this. It can look different for a lot of people. Um, for me, it came at a time when I was training for a really long race and I got injured and I couldn't run, let alone do the race. And and so everything, all the disappointment and all the stress and all the self-hatred and loathing and compensatory behavior I was doing just because I couldn't run made me feel like I didn't want to live. It was, I just could not find a reason to make my life worth it if I couldn't do this one thing that actually had so many tentacles that reached out into other parts of my life. Um, and so when I realized that if I didn't get my shit together, if I didn't understand what was going on in my head, that this was not a healthy place for me to be, despite the fact that people looked at my lifestyle, the foods I ate, the exercise I did, the way I was a nutritionist and the way I worked with people, 
people looked at me on the outside and thought, how can she be not healthy? She's like, I'll spirulina all the time. Or she's, she's vegan and, and, and grain-free and gluten-free and, and oil-free. And this is, the, this is what everybody aspires to. How is she not healthy? And I was probably the sickest I've ever been at that point. So you come to a sense of, you could come to recovery from a sense of desperation. You could come to recovery from a realization that is like a aha moment. Um, and I think when you come to that realization, however you get there, it's really important to reach out and talk about it. Because, you know, I think diet culture and eating disorder shit thrives in isolation. And it really finds finds space and healing finds space and power in shared community in community so until I could speak about it until I could um, get some help um, and find a community for myself in my eating disorder recovery it, it, it just it didn't stick and I'd say it's it's I feel very solid in it right now never say never behaviors come up a lot and it's just a matter of knowing how to acknowledge them and um, move away from them and talk to them and talk about it with other people and so far so good i'm knocking on my ikea plywood i'll knock on some wood too thank you producer ponyo just woke up um <laughs> i remember in portland there was a zine called figure eight that was a fat positive zine um mm-hmm. kind of along the lines of fat so by marilyn Wan. And this mm-hmm. woman, Chrissy, um, did a reading at one of our zine symposium things. It basically was like, I don't know, the gist of it was nobody who loves you would love you less if you weighed 20 more pounds or 30 more pounds. Like, your parents wouldn't love you less. The, your best friends wouldn't like you less. You know, people wouldn't laugh less at your jokes. Like, you would, people who love you actually are just going to love you no matter your size. And something about that really stuck with me you know as somebody who grew up kind of dabbling in lots of different restrictive eating or you know like feeling bad or having moments like during a breakup or depression where then I dropped weight and people were like what you look wonderful what's your secret I'm like crippling grief and they're like awesome you know or like oh (laughs) let me have a bit of that you know like horrible depression and my teeth are broken and they're like oh awesome that looks (laughs) great on you (laughs) Dental distress and poverty looks great on you. But after having that and then just having somebody be like, literally everybody who loves you would love you if you were fat or if you weighed more or if you didn't, you know, do these things that isolate and restrict yourself. It was such a huge moment for me as a young person. It's nice. to. It is definitely nice to think about a lot of times when when folks are in larger bodies or in larger bodies than they're comfortable with are dating um that comes up a lot and my response to that would be you know the people that you're dating probably know what your body looks like they've been around you they've they've seen you either naked or not yet naked but they're making the choice to be with you and they already know pretty much they have an idea what you look like so they're making that choice and you trust that choice now, I can't say, I mean, yes, what you say has merit, for sure, people love you, but I also think there are people who won't love you because of your size, and that's important to recognize that that's not your fault. None of this shit is anybody's fault. 
it's the way that we've been enculturated into this system of beliefs that has you, um, you know, demonizing one kind of body and elevating another kind of body and assuming one kind of body is right for everybody. That's what we grew up thinking. Yeah. Oh, Meg, it's such a joy having you on the podcast. <laughs> I feel like I've been doing my glue. But yes, it's, <laughs> it's such a joy seeing you. Oh, I'm yeah. really glad to be like in your presence, even on Zoom. How can people, Elder Queer is open to people that are 40 and over. Um, Elder Queer is 40 and over, uh, queer identified folks. Nobody checks your ID at the door. Nobody checks your queer card at the door. This is all self-identified. Um, and what we're doing is we, August is a break. Um, we had a really great July group, which was an accomplice group talking about racial justice, which was really fantastic. Um, and so we decided this year we're going to launch the season two of Elder Queer with one meeting a month that's topic specific. And so we're kind of building out that calendar and that's a Zoom meeting. So all of this is the skeletons of the um, of the curriculum are still kind of in flux. But our first meeting in September is going to be for butch and masculine center identified folks um, specifically. And then we're just going to go from there. Like we'll have different topics and the podcast is being talked about. And I think each month the podcast will be the topic of discussion that we're going to be having. And we hope to have guests and, and do all the things. But yeah, it's a, it's a work in progress and a labor of love. But um, I'm really grateful to have um, Westlake and my and I'm gonna name them because they don't really get enough cred. So my advisory board is Amy Elaine, Christy, Lisa, um, Maddie, Emeritus, um, Nikki. And how can people work? Me. How can people work with you if they want to find you for Lamplight? Yeah. Um, I really just operate only on Instagram in terms of social media for both. So Lamplight.space on Instagram. Um, my you can go to my link tree in my bio there's work with me if you're interested in working with me or see the other things i do once you look at my instagram you might, <laughs> you might be like oh i don't know that person's a loud mouth um and then elder queer it's elder underscore queer on instagram and all the stuff we when we start marketing the next season it will be on instagram specifically Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton, with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.